Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Um, come on, good. Uh, hey, before I start, I just want to uh, give thanks and, and shout out. Um, uh, there's a family here. Uh, the Fox family um, is, is with us. And um, Elisha and Isaiah were students of mine back in the day at Wissahickon, um, another lifetime ago, it feels like. And they are now no longer sixth graders, um, that's to be sure. Um, but I'm just glad, glad the, you guys are with us. Um, I hope that this sermon brings you back to some of those sparkling uh, lessons on ancient history that you had for me, um, which I know you still cherish and think about to this day. Uh, yeah. Um, the, 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 we're looking at, uh, as Angela said, we're beginning a series on faith and sexuality um, for four weeks. Uh, you, might, you might ask the same question that some of our youth group kids asked, why? Why would we do this? Um, in a very teenager kind of way. Um, it's a good question. So l- l- let me just suggest and, and give you a couple reasons why. Um, f- for one thing, we, we believe that the gospel changes everything, and that includes our bodies. Um, the gospel changes everything, and our bodies are not excluded from that. Our sexuality is not excluded from that. Uh, and so we want, as a church, consider what does the gospel have to say about that. Um, what else? We, as I said to our youth group this morning, uh, we want to be able to open this conversation with them and begin to say, what do the scriptures tell you and teach you about um, what does it mean to, to have a body? What does it mean um, to be a sexual being as God created you in the world? And, and what part, of, part of that is to say, we want nothing to sort of be off limits. Uh, and, and there's no taboo topic that we can't say, what do the scriptures tell us? And how do we live wisely? Uh, and so certainly that's, that's part of the motivation. Uh, another reason we want, we want to have this conversation is because there are, there are sexual minorities um, in our, in our fa- church family and, and related to families in our church family. Um, there are those who identify as LGBTQ. Um, there are those who have, who have hurt and background in their story. Um, and, and so we want to be a church that, uh, where, where, we can, where we can name that and know that and look to the scriptures and know how to learn to love one another in the midst of that. Um, and all the complexities that come with that. And of course, as well, another reason is that we all live in communities of, of brokenness in this way. Um, Montgomery County, that your neighborhood it, it is populated with people who are hurt and have pain and shame and hardship and are wrestling with what does it mean? Why, why, why do I, what has God given me? How do I honor him? Um, or how do, what is this body that God's given me? And how do I... How do I live holy um, in the midst of that. And we believe that the word of God is good news for all people and good news and speaks into those, into your neighbor's lives in that way. So th- these are some of the reasons that, um, that we want to talk about it. And, and, and part of also what we want to say at the beginning is that these conversations are, are difficult. Um, they're hard. They're complex. Uh, so we want to walk in humility. And we also want to say that we know that that difficulty and that, that complexity can be distressing distressing for, for some of us, uh, and, and to, in, in, an, in a very serious way. And so what, what we want to also say to you is that throughout this series, that there's an open invitation um, to come and, and, and speak, certainly to Angelo and I, to the other leaders of the church, um, to people in your small group. Uh, do not be in distress alone. You, you do not have to hide and cover how you're responding to this. We want to invite you to be a part of a conversation um, and, and talking together and praying together about these things. Um, so please know that's an open invitation. 
Uh, the end of the sermon is not the final word on that topic. Uh, we we want to be a community that, that knows we can go to one another and share our, our difficulties and our pains and our questions. So, um, so what are we aiming for then? We're, we're, these are some of the reasons why. I would say there are three things that we want to hope to, to, to cherish together. Uh, we want to be a people of gospel compassion. We want to be a people of theological clarity. And we want to be a, a healthy community that is nurturing um, to all. These three things are important, by the way. Uh, it won't work to have um, gospel compassion without theological clarity. Uh, being clear on things is actually a good loving way for our community to understand where, 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 where we believe the scriptures point us. Um, it won't work to have theological clarity without gospel compassion and health and healing and nurturing as a community either. So we hope to um, begin the groundwork for all of those three things. So uh, that's a lot by way of introduction. How do we begin then uh, this week? Uh, I'll give you an analogy. Sandra Richter, she's written a book called Epic of Eden uh, that kind of is a great introduction to the Old Testament, by the way, if you're looking for, for something. Um, and she starts by talking about the scriptures uh, and what she describes as the dysfunctional closet syndrome. She says, sometimes we come to the scriptures like the way you open up your messy closet. Uh, and I know you might not have a messy closet. Maybe that's a point of pride for you. Um, but there's a drawer, there's somewhere in your home that is that, that messy place uh, where you go in and you sort of are just immediately hit with how disorganized everything is. There's clothing falling off the rack. Um, there's things on the floor. There's something you know you should have thrown out years ago, but you just don't do it for whatever reason. Um, and, and usually what happens with the, in the dysfunctional closet is that you, you sort of pick up the few things that you know where they go immediately, and then you sort of shut the door and resolve to clean up the rest uh, next week or next year or whatever the case may be. Um, and so what, 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 it's an analogy for this topic. We all probably have a couple passages where we know to go to think about sexuality, um, but we don't want to be dysfunctional closet cleanuppers and then shut the door on the rest of Scripture. Uh, so what, what, what we hope to do today is the, the way you get out of the dysfunctional closet syndrome is we're going to look at the whole story. We're going to sort of take a large, a large look at what, what does the scriptures tell us um, in, in, a, in, a, in a large story kind of way instead of just picking maybe up a few of the passages that, that we can quickly sort. So that's the aim of this first sermon. And, and we're going to look at that question of what do the scriptures tell us broadly under three headings you have in your outline. Um, the, the home you were made for, the exile you're in, and then the way back home. And uh, Nancy, kind of as she read those scriptures, sort of mapped our way that we're going to go. Uh, so the, the home we're made for, Genesis 1, um, is, is the, the beginning point of our story. Uh, God creates humanity in his image. You saw in, in, uh, in verse 26, we were made to image God in the world. And uh, what, what does that mean? It's actually, it's right there in the text, verse 28. Uh, we're, we're made to image, we're actually made to be, to mirror who God is and demonstrate some of the ways he is in the world. Uh, verse, verse 28, uh, we know God to be a ruler. God is a ruler, and, and he actually gives us that task too. Uh, verse 28, God blessed him and said, be fruitful, increase and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over. So we're called, part of our call is, as image bearers is to rule over and subdue creation, which I, I told the youth this morning. They said, it, it doesn't quite, that's a strange th thought. I don't, I don't, some of us maybe do. Some of us are quick to say, yeah, I'm a ruler. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I get that. Um, 
to be a ruler, to subdue the earth is part of our, our calling. God calls us also to be fruitful, you see, and, and multiply. God creates out of nothing. He calls us to be fruitful, to be creators, to be multipliers in the world. Uh, it, it wasn't in the text that we read, but later you know this in chapter 2, uh, verses 25, 24 to 25, uh, I'll read it for you. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God calls us to, to rule, to be fruitful in creation. He also calls us to be lovers, to love as he loves. God is a, is, is a passionate lover, and he calls us to love in the same way. It's part of our image bearing, is to love one another. So there's, there's a picture then of the image of God. We're, we're called to be like God in the world, to rule over, to be fruitful, to create, to love. Um, and this is, this is a part that's easy to miss in the midst of this. Um, God also gives us a body to carry out this image. Uh, it's not a concept, it's not an abstraction that we're supposed to image God. He gives us a body to carry out this image in the world. Um, our bodies are not arbitrary lumps of matter. God wants you to have a body. Uh, we are, as the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, I saw this um, in my, I confess, my scrolling on the internet, um, but I, the, the, about our DNA. Did you know, and I can't confirm this, so it's from the internet, all right? I'll just put that out there. Did you know that the DNA in your body could circle, it could circle the solar system twice? That if, we, if you were to take the DNA in your body and unravel it, it's long enough to circle the solar system twice. Now, even if it's that's half true, I mean, that's incredible. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, Sam Albury, uh, he, he writes, we're not just the outcome of God's activity, we are the product of God's intention. His intention is that we are made and given our whole being for relationship with God. And that's, that's what our body is for, to carry this image um, for relationship with God, to be in his presence. That's, that's part of the picture we get in, in Genesis, to be in his presence, to be in relationship with other people, and then to, to, to subdue and rule over um, creation. God's place for us in creation. And, and all of this, of course, gives us a purpose. There's, there's purpose just, just crying out from all of those things. This is, this is the home we're made for. That, that's what we're designed for, in God's presence, to do these things. And it's important that we begin there. That's home. That's, that's the image God gives us. That's our purpose. And of course, um, the, the story turns, and, and, uh, and that's, that's what you heard from Kira this morning, that's what you heard from, as Nancy read the scripture, uh, the fall, as we, as we call it, um, of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And, and I hope then, when we begin in Genesis 1, you see that, um, th that the fall is not just simply uh, a breaking of the rules. Uh, it is not just failing to turn on your turn signal, uh, making a left-hand turn. God is, is not just an overzealous traffic cop. 
if, if you have Genesis 1 in mind, uh, what you see is that in, in the fall, in, in breaking God's rule, there's, there's a rejection of home that's happening. It's bigger than just a breaking of a rule. And, and part of that, because it, it's at the heart of that breaking of God's rule, is, is a twisting of who God is. When, when they twist who God is, that then leads to them being able to break, break his rule, break his law. Uh, you notice in Genesis 3, 5, here's the temptation. For God knows that when you eat from, its, from it, the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, so what's, what's sort of underlying, what's the belief that's being asked of them, uh, for them to buy into? Uh, God is keeping something from me that proves his lack of love. That's sort of beneath that lie, isn't it? Uh, God, here's the serpent. God knows if you have it, you'll have something good. The lie that you have to believe is that, oh, God is keeping something from me. He doesn't truly love me. Uh, and then sort of with that, the other side of that is then what I have been given when God says you're free to eat of all the fruit of the garden, there's, there's another assumption there then that that's not sufficient. What God has given you is not enough. God's keeping from me something from me and what he has given me is not sufficient. And, and so the Adam and Eve arrive at this conclusion. They are more capable of setting their own path than the one that the creator has given them. They're more capable of creating a better home than the home that God has given them. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, this is a, a, a favorite quote of mine. He, he describes it as uh, neither his character, neither God's character, nor his words were to be trusted is what's happening. This, in fact, uh, Sinclair writes, is the lie that, all, that sinners have believed ever since. The lie that the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. The lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. And so as a result, the, the image of God in us is, is cracked. It's, it's cracked, it's broken. It's not taken from us. Just understand that if, if, if you lost the image of God, you would cease to exist. You would cease to be a human. But the image is, is broken as a result of this. It's irreparably broken. Uh, and, and in all the ways that, that the image given to us, in, in the blessing of it, it's broken in all those ways. So, um, so you see in the text, um, they, they become broken within themselves. They see themselves as naked and, and, for, and need to cover it up. Uh, this morning, as I talked to the youth, we, we imagined, you know, that, that childhood freedom, that age when, like, there's maybe one or two years where you're just allowed to, like, be out in the yard and you don't have to have any clothes on. It just doesn't matter, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's a, I'm getting some strange looks. There's kids who run around without clothes on, or maybe in a diaper, all right? Thank you. Thank you. I got it. Yes, thank you. Testimony over there. It's true. There's a freedom there. And so why do I raise that? Because think about to go from that freedom to then the, 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 the utter shame and brokenness of, of the self, to then suddenly say, wait, wait a second, that's not, that's not right. It, it, there's an immediate veil cast over. They're ashamed of their own nakedness. And then, likewise, in verse 7, you see they're ashamed in front of each other. And this, this is truly uh, some of the heartbreak of this passage, right? That they, they look at one another now and see, them, see each other in a completely different light. They're ashamed to be in front of each other. Their relationship that, that call to love is now broken in a way, to love one another. And then, of course, we didn't read the whole part, but you know, if you continue to read chapter 3, their, their vocation to rule over and subdue the earth, 
is now under curse. Their labor, the ground itself, scriptures tell us, is, is crying out and groaning. So our relationship with, with, with each other, with ourselves, with, with our creation is broken. And of course, at the base of that all is the distrust of God that's sown into the human heart. And then we see that in the next verse, in verse, verse 8. Uh, what is their instinct? They, their instinct is to hide from God. To go from perfect home and presence with God to wanting to hide among the bushes from the Lord. And so Adam and Eve are, are in all these ways, they're driven from their home into exile by their own doing. Uh, so th- this, is, this is the picture we have from Scripture of the exile we're in. And, and certainly, um, uh, th- this, this is a story we know well in our own lives. Uh, the, the story of exile from the garden um, is, so for instance, it's a story our bodies tell us every day. Uh, the ex- you know exile in your body every day, particularly when you get um, closer to my age, which I know some people are like, you don't even know the half of it yet. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and it's funny because Bridge, if you haven't noticed, is in a particularly um, intense season of noticing, noticing this exile in the, in the physical form. It seems like if you want to be part of leadership here at Bridge, you need to break something or have surgery on something. or uh, it, it's just, it just seems to be all around us at the moment. Um, our bodies are subjects as a result of this breaking to physical decline and death. Um, and in the same way, um, our hearts, our hearts are bound to spiritual decay and bondage. So the disorder you feel physically, uh, the pattern of sin in your life, these are, these are groans, these are groans of exile that we carry. And so, so this is an important point to get, that when we speak about faith and sexuality, when we think about our, our which, when we say sexuality, what, what do we mean? We mean our capacity for sexual feelings and intimacy. Our, our capacity for sexual feelings and intimacy. When we think about um, faith and sexuality, that this, is, this is a leveling when we come back to Genesis 1 through 3. We, we are all sexually broken. If, if, we, if the scriptures are to be believed, if this kind of exile is true, we are all in sexual exile to a certain extent. There is no exile within the exile. Uh, and we do this, and I do this too. I have deemed certain people sexually broken in a deeper exile than I am. To my shame. Um, it is actually another gospel to believe that your exile depends in any way on your marital status and the kind of longings and attractions you have, on the things that you've done with your body or the things that have been done to you. It's another gospel to believe that your physical health or your body image has any bearing on the degree to which you are in exile. We are all equally sexually broken. None of those things can by themselves regulate you to a greater need for grace than any other. All of us are lost trying to find a way back home. And that, that very point may be the thing that you need to wrestle with for the rest of the series. 
Uh, and, and I would invite you to allow the Spirit to demonstrate where you have judged and looked down upon or exalted your own self um, or, or overemphasized your own shame to the point where you think you are more lost than the rest of us. So, so how do we get back home? We're, we're still in this exile. Um, and and there, are, there are two ways that I just want to suggest to you that we try to deal with this, this lostness um, to try to get back home again, um, that, get us, that, that keep us actually tragically in our exile. The first is the fig leaf. You notice in verse 7, um, and I alluded it to already, Adam and Eve cover in shame. Their, their, their move is to quickly hide their, their brokenness. Um, and, and actually, we should say that there's actually a thread of something right there in the sense of uh, they recognize something's wrong and they move toward it. They move to sort of try to, try to deal with it. Um, they know something's what, not what it should be. And so there's actually like a, a thread of conscientiousness and a desire to restore order that's within this. Um, the, the, the trouble is you can't outcover your, your shame. You can't outcover your brokenness. And, and, and more importantly, what you try to hide up actually keeps it from being able to be healed. Uh, just a, an example from my own life. Um, as a child, it was very important for me to not be known, uh, not be discovered as somebody who couldn't spell very well. Um, I, to this day, am a terrible speller. And my method was, uh, and I think I've shared this before, is that I, what I moved toward, I covered up the spelling um, and, but with a front of poor handwriting. So this is a trick if, you, if, you're, if you're like me. Um, you just have really sloppy handwriting and then no one can be the wiser, you know? Well, he clearly meant the A and the E there. He just, you know, it just looks a little funny. Um, so I, I but, but, but as I hid my poor spelling, um, it actually only fed my temptation to not care about what the actual spelling was supposed to be, right? Um, and, and to this day, this has actually not healed anything. I, I now am both a horrible speller and I have horrific handwriting. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of a silly example, though, of, of what happens when we try to use a fig leaf to bring healing and to cover what we're ashamed of, um, to cover our exile. Uh, our instinct is to cover rather than to seek healing. And, and just as in the garden, it's, it's about a distrust that God, that, that God will do what he says he will do. You see yourself and think, um, there is no way God could love this. There's no way God could love this. And, and this is particularly important here in a church context. This, that there's a reason why religion and, and church have been a place of the fig leaf. Uh, because the fig leaf starts by acknowledging that something's wrong. And churches and religion are good at that. It's, it's one of the few places in the world where you walk in and you know you're going to be told, yeah, you've you got, you got some problems. So that's a beginning point. That's a beginning point. But, but what communities of faith often do, what religion in general tends to do, is, is instead of seeking healing, um, we, can, we generally, we, in our sinful nature, we create a sense of belonging and community around the things that we'll together keep hidden and the things that we'll together judge others for. And so we go by the way of the fig leaf. We go the way of covering up what is shameful. And, and tragically, this also explains why you see a 
just the horror of all the, the, the downfalls of leaders and in and, and the church, all the, the abuse that's happened, because under shame, under the, the, the cover of a fig leaf, that is the breeding ground for sexual temptation. That is the breeding ground for, for more brokenness and for more sin when we hide things in shame. So there's the, the way of the fig leaf. We try to get back home by covering things up. There's also then, there's another way that we try to get back home. And this is more of a mainstream story. Um, this is, if you like, there's the fig leaf and then this is the, the Tower of Babel approach to getting back home. Um, it, it, it's sometimes called, and if you begin to read around this topic, um, expressive individualism. Uh, there's this idea, this story, that my mind and my feelings and my thoughts and my personal choices can actually in themselves be a home for me. That I can make home for myself in what I think and I feel and I do. Um, and this actually comes out of a rejection of the fig leaf. You've covered me up. You've made me walk in shame. I'm going to be who I am. And the fig leaf is thrown off. A rejection of social norms. And, and so we should say that like the fig leaf, there's actually a thread of something right here. Um, that what we think and feel should not be relegated to shadow. Uh, and, and there's actually in this story, the Babel, there's actually a, a right emphasis on personal freedom and on, a, on the individual. That, that in, in some ways, the, the, the Christian can run along next to before, before there's some departure. Uh, it's actually, th th this, this mode, this, this thought has actually brought an end to a lot of oppressive social conventions that we should be glad are no longer uh, keeping us hidden and keeping people, certain people, certain people groups um, in shame. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, some of the thread of this is that, you, uh, you may not know this, this is ADHD Awareness Month. That, uh, you might notice your calendar now is filled with, there's all these awareness months. And, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, I'm glad for that. Um, and yet, and this story, this story of the Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel, leads us to believe that at the bottom of who we are, there is a final home to be discovered. Uh, and it's sort of a moral quest that, that culminates in self-expression. And so you may notice that, that good and evil right now are often defined as those who celebrate self-expression and those who seek to challenge it in any form. Which is why if you're a Christian here today, you may feel the culture telling you you're nothing but a bigot or you're just ignorant. Um, and, 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 and this is why. Uh, because because the, this, the mainstream story is self-expression is the most courageous thing that you can do because it defines who you are. And so if, if any sense you come against that, you're now an evil character on a hero's quest. But this, this quest, um, by its nature, is a quest without rest. Uh, a key part of being home is rest. Uh, it's a quest that demands more and more, even as it returns less and less. And tragically, it chews up the very self that, seek, that is seeking to be created. You can never get to the bottom of who you are because you, um, you by yourself, because you're made for another. You're made by and for another. So neither the fig leaf nor expressive individualism bring us home. Um, our hearts, the seat of the broken image, remain in exile. And, and it's worth just pausing for a moment 
to, to gather up the immense amount of suffering that these paths of trying to get home have brought about. Uh, it is a stunning amount of, of brokenness and suffering that even is represented in this room alone because of the, the broken image in exile trying to find another way back home and misusing our bodies and misusing our desires um, as an end to that. And so not only are we all equally broken, we are all, we are all suffering as a result of this in this room and, and, and in, our, in our county. So, so how do we get back home? Let's, let's, let's close in this last point um, here, the, the way back home. Uh, John 15, 1 through 5. Uh, by the end of Genesis 3, humanity is in an exile of its own choosing from the presence of God. And, and within that Genesis 3, actually, God names one of the main uh, dominant features of the whole rest of scriptures. He says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And you could say that the rest of the scripture is, is answering that question. Is God trying to seek us out? God saying to us, where are you? And God coming to seek us. Because the, the, the good news of the gospel, the truth is that in order to get out of exile, in order to get home, you need another to come and get, get you. You need another to overcome our bondage and bring us home. And John 15 is, is one way of answering Genesis 3.9. God comes to us in the flesh with a passionate, affectionate, and faithful love. He does not come on a, with a horse and buggy to load us up and take us to a distant land from all that shames us. Uh, he does not come to teach us how to live authentically. The story of Scripture is that all our longings for something more, for healing, and to know ourselves and to be fully known, all of our longings to be intimate with and loved by others, to have a purpose in life that can only be satisfied in another. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying in John 15. Your, your heart, brothers and sisters, are restless until you find rest in Christ. And so Jesus Christ comes to join us to himself. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, so the, the gospel call in this is that when you give yourself to this crucified one, you give up your life in order to find it in his resurrection. Jesus goes down into death to confront our sin and exile. And in his resurrection, he has victory over the bonds that keep us there. And he makes a way for us to be restored back home to God. And in him, you belong in the vine. You are at home again in Christ. That's what Christ offers us. He is in us and we are in him. And, and so what does this mean? This means that in this life, day by day, as you, as you live in union with him, day by day, our exile is turned back and home advances in our lives. Home advances in our lives. And the, the spell, the very, little, the very real spell of our brokenness, of exile, is broken. Um, it, it, silver chair, any silver chair fans here? Uh, the silver chair has a great, uh, so C.S. Lewis's, um, one of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a great moment um, where uh, uh, this, a witch has captured this prince, Prince Rillian, and he's holding him captive in her underground lair. Uh, it's known as the Deep Realm. Uh, and Aslan, the powerful lion, uh, and the ruler of Narnia, he sends a small group to go rescue the prince. 
It's a great C.S. Lewis story. It's kind of a classic in that way. Um, and so this group, this little band of rescuers, finds the prince in the underground world. Um, and and they're, she's keeping them captive, though, not behind bars, but through an enchantment that she, that she conjures through a fire. Uh, and the enchantment is, is, is the, the basic of the, um, work of the enchantment is to convince the prince that the underworld is the only real world and Narnia doesn't exist. There is no above world. There is nothing other than the underworld. The deep realm is what's real. And the rescuers themselves actually get pulled into the enchantment um, by, near the fire. Um, and at one point, one of their number, um, Puddleglum, which is just a great, great name, right? Uh, Puddleglum, he tries to remember the sun in Narnia. And he says, I, I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And for a moment, the characters all remember the sun, this, this thing they've seen, and they're, they're sort of roused out of their enchantment. Um, and they, they try to rally together to describe the sun by comparing it to a lamp in the room. And the witch says, uh, no, no, she says, no, you're dreaming of the sun. The lamp is the real thing. You're making up this idea of the sun. Um, the sun is but a tale, a children's story, she says. And then the witches nearly has them in a complete grasp uh, of the enchantment. Um, when Jill is, is able, Jill, one of the other uh, rescuers, is able to remember the name Aslan. And she remembers the name. Um, and and uh, the witch tries to convince the characters, no, 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 Aslan's just a cat, right? It's a, it, there's no such thing as a lion. There's cats, and you're just imagining and making up this idea of a lion. Um, but the name Aslan, the name Aslan is enough to rouse them out of their, their enchantment. Um, and, and, and they rally, and they stomp out the fire together, and, and ultimately, it's the name, it's the bond, the union with the name that leads them out of, out of the deep realm to their freedom. And, and that's, that's a picture of what, what union with Christ does. It restores us to ourselves and it restores us to our bodies. Our bodies are hugely important in this story. God's purpose is etched into our bodies. Um, and as I said, your longings to be healed, your longings to be physically loved and cared for, uh, to be embraced by somebody else, for intimacy, for our sexuality, our sexual desires, are all given, they're all a divine honing instinct. So what the fig leaf might call dirty or dangerous or babble might call just a biological, physical appetite, our union with Christ names as an aching or something that can only be satisfied in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We bodily ache, brothers and sisters, for the end of history, and we can begin to know this in part um, through Christ. Uh, so let, let me just end with, um, and I know I said I was already going to end. Classic mistake. I am going to end now. Um, with just two things to talk, uh, how does that union with Christ address um, our fig leaf and our babble? Um, just, just quickly, uh, the, the answer to your shame, if you're somebody who has a lot of shame about your sexuality, uh, it, it's a matter of who you bring yourself to the one you bring yourself to. The scriptures tell us this, that, that our community will testify to this. We can trust him. If you have shame this morning, you can trust our Father is good. He will bring about healing and restore what has been lost into exile. Uh, this, is, this is actually beautifully portrayed in Isaiah 54. Uh, the scriptures say, sing, barren woman, you who have never born a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who, never in, who, you who are never in labor, 
because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Listen, the Lord says, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach, reproach of your widowhood. God is trustworthy. And so the, the call here is not only for those who experience shame in a very personal way, but it's also we, we remove the fig leaf as a community um, to be a church family that allows light to emerge is a collective work. So, so part of that is, it, you're wondering, how does that work? When, when we're a community that's not just busy and being nice, a busy, nice people uh, is, is a haven for shame. But when we slow down, when we're people of prayer, uh, when we're openly broken, when we openly say, like Ruth, um, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? When that's our posture as a people, uh, we, we actually bring light into shame as a community, when we slow down and we, we share our brokenness. And then, uh, so, so this, is, that, this is one invitation for how we deal with the fig leaf in our community. How do we deal with Babel? How do we deal with the message of the mainstream of, of, of our culture? Um, uh, I would just suggest to you that trying to scream back at the culture won't work. Just a gentle, loving suggestion as somebody who's tried it and failed myself. Uh, uh, that, that, and, and recognize that the church needs to do a, a, has a calling to invite people to a better story. And here's one way we could do it. Um, and hang in there with me. Uh, th- this is from, from Glenn Harrison. He's a, he's a Christian writer and thinker on these things. As you face people in the world who are telling themselves the story of expressive individualism, as a Christian, here's a response. Uh, he says it in three parts. You say, sorry, thank you, and please. Uh, sorry. Actually, it's, it's, it costs us nothing to say that, that we're sorry for the bigotry that, that sometimes the church and religion has, has cast out into the world on people outside the church. It actually costs us nothing to say that, to come with humility and say sorry, to say thank you. Um, there's actually some good things that are being uncovered. It's actually a good thing to say, hey, we can't live in shame. We should say thank you to that. We should, allow, we, should, we should be humble enough to hear and receive that as believers. Uh, we, we as a church have not really thought about what sex is for. And then please, and finally please. Um, so we've owned up to some of our stuff. Can we actually talk about what is the fruit of expressive individualism? Is it really delivering on its promises? Uh, are, are we actually healthier as a society and as a people in this way of thinking? And that's just one way for us to, to as a church, to, to respond to some of the, the cultural narrative. And, and I would just, yeah, if that feels like capitulating to you, um, I would just encourage you to, 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 one, realize I think the culture war is, is lost. Um, and we're, we're in the minority as Christians. And it's okay to accept that and then to be a faithful witness out of that. Uh, and if, if you're really uncomfortable with what I just said, I invite you to come talk to me about it. But um, it's a good place for us to, to go forward. Um, the worship team can come forward. Uh, so, so these sermons and this sermon certainly won't answer all of our, our questions. Um, and, and it may raise more than it answers. But, but actually what we want to do is be asking questions within the story of Scripture we just talked about. 
What does my union with Christ mean for me when I look at and think about my body and the longings of my body? What does union in Christ tell me about my sexuality? These might not be questions you have answers to at the moment, but those are the questions that we ask as a people living in union with Christ. Uh, we are not, we're not owned by our bodies, but we're not ashamed of them. And we can begin to see and know our sexuality as an expression and as an instrument of our union with Christ. And, and that's where the next three sermons are designed to go, to help us think that out. So let, let me pray for us. Lord, we, um, we just want to uh, humbly come to you and say, help us, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord, as we, as we want to return back home, we want to live in union with you. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us to do these things. Um, by your grace and your mercy, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.